Hi everyone and welcome back to Discerning Consciousness. I'm your host Ant and today I'm delighted to be joined by Howard Burton and Howard is a scholar, uh, academic, a writer and um, CEO of a, a company that produces um, information films. So hello Howard, uh, great to have you on Discerning Consciousness and um, um, it's really um, interesting to hopefully we'll be able to pick apart some of the main themes and ideas from from your new book. Um, so before we um, address some of these um, ideas, uh, I wonder if you could just share with our audience just a little bit about your yourself and your background. Well, I'd be delighted to. Thank you. Thank very you much. so much. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. It's a wonderful uh, pleasure for me to be here on Thank your you. show. Um, so uh, a little bit about me. My background is uh, I'm Canadian and I have, as you mentioned, uh, an academic background. I have uh, a PhD in physics and I have a master's in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then by a curious uh, set of circumstances, found myself building and running a, a physics institute in Canada for the better mm-hmm. part of uh, eight years or so. It's called Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. Then I moved to France and was involved in various writing and consulting projects for a while. And then I started something called Ideas Roadshow. And the idea behind that was to harness the advantages and affordances of modern technology to be able to bring scholarly insights to the general public. Because uh, my thinking was, and buttressed by my experiences when I was uh, running this research institute, that the general public actually has a tremendous amount of interest in all sorts of things that are happening in the academic world, in the scholarly world. Mm. And they don't really have very much in the way of opportunity to be able to engage in the level that they would like to engage in. Mm. So when I was at um, a Perimeter, I started a bunch of uh, outreach activities. That's not terribly revolutionary or terribly innovative, uh, but we tried to do it in all sorts of different ways, uh, both for uh, the general public, for students, for high school teachers and the like, mm-hmm. because the sense was this was really an opportunity for a celebration. Here was this new institute that was founded with a public-private partnership, and we had an opportunity to get people curious about why somebody would do that, why the government's interested in sponsoring it, what it is that these guys are doing behind this, this, this ivory tower, and really trying to make these ideas come to life. And it was very gratifying to see the public respond in such an enthusiastic way. So years later, I thought, well, maybe I can scale this up and use, as I said, the affordances of digital media technology because things are so easy to produce now at such a, a a high level, I certainly don't need to tell you. And there are ways in which you can reach out and engage people around the world. Mm. And this, not only on the consumer side, but also as it were on the production side, the actual experts themselves. And this brings up something which is also curious when you're an academic administrator, for, for your sins, you spend time with other academic administrators. It's, uh, it's not a very salubrious situation to be in. And one of the things that people who are running universities will say is that they, they say things like, oh, it's, it's really a shame because we have all these great scholars, all these great thinkers within our, our, our university, within our campus, what have you. And I can't get them to go out and engage with the public. They're just too busy doing their research and, and they're, they don't want to talk to people. 
And this was always strange to me because it, it jarred considerably with my experience. And I came to appreciate that it's not so much that the, the researchers and the scholars and the academics and the scientists and what have you uh, are unwilling or unable to engage with the general public. It's more often than not, they don't actually have a platform to be able to do so. Absolutely. And so the idea of, of Ideas Roadshow was, okay, well, we'll take that away. We won't, we'll go right to them. We won't inconvenience them. Um, we'll try to engage with them in a way not dissimilar to what you're doing, really trying to get the content of what they're doing in an open, honest, forthright way mm. um, uh, and in a long format way. So they're not forced to say, distill everything you've done in the past 30 years in 10 seconds or something like that, but really engage with them in a way which enables us to discuss and bring out the, the joys and wonders and frustrations and excitement of what it is that they're doing. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for, for the better part of uh, another eight years or so uh, in creating these books for Ideas Roadshow with scholars from a, a tremendously wide range of uh, different subject areas, history, psychology, philosophy, uh, physics, biology, uh, what have you. And, um, and the response has really been tremendous in terms of of the accessibility and the excitement and the commitment that those uh, scholars are, are willing to uh, do. And as I said, this, this very much meets my initial expectation and certainly puts paid to the, to the bias that a lot of these academic administrators have. No, these people are interested, they are able, they are excited to be able to talk about their work. In fact, one of the hardest problems I have is getting them to stop talking about their work. <laughs> Uh, they're, they're, you know, the conversations typically last between two and three hours long. So there's a tremendous amount of information which is there and, and uh, which is very, very valuable. Uh, obviously needs to be reshaped. It needs to, uh, it needs to be framed in such a way that, that uh, the content can be uh, uh, read and understood as well as possible. Um, mm. But the level of engagement that these people are willing to, um, to put forth is, is really most impressive. And this has also made me appreciate the fact that, um, uh, and we'll, we'll hopefully we'll, we'll get into this later, but this has led me to, to recognize that the United States in particular has, I mean, all countries do, uh, I'm not singling out the United States in this regard, but um, given the fact that the United States is in a particularly dysfunctional state right now, given the fact that it's, uh, it's, it's going through this exceptionally divisive and, and exceptionally um, counterproductive uh, culture war. Um, and at the same time, the United States is home to the dominant share of scholarly excellence in every field you can imagine. Absolutely. Um, there seems to be a real opportunity to actually uh, recognize the, the latter instance and use it to help the former terrible situation that they're in. Because mm. one, obviously, one of the premises of your book, Howard, is this idea that um, good quality information that's coming uh, from the academic world is not feeding through into um, the mainstream media news networks. And um, obviously, that is, that's fueling this idea whereby another thing that you mentioned is how um, opinion now is, is, said to be more important than actual knowledge 
So it's it's not um, the veracity or the force of someone's opinion is overriding just objective knowledge, if you will. Um, and that's what we're, we're kind of seeing more and more. And it's your your enterprise is is fantastic because it's giving the public um, access to this um, uh, information and scholarly uh, analysis, which which you would argue is what we we need more of in society to to, to heal these divisions, certainly within in, within America. Absolutely, that's absolutely right. I, I would uh, you're bang on, Ant, but I would add a few things to that. Of course, yeah. Um, it's not just that it's not filtering through. Yeah. Uh, it's that it's actually being impeded. Right. And, and the book is called. Uh, I've got to look down because I always forget. Yeah. The subtitle. It's quite a long title. <laughs> You know, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, that's the problem. I, I can never remember what I actually wrote, but uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, so the subtitle is "How Americans Are Increasingly Confusing Knowledge with Opinion, and What Can Be Done About It." Sure. And the thesis of the book is, uh, and, and the, the initial, so the title, unlike all of that long-winded uh, subtitle, is exceptionally upsetting, which of course is is playing on this notion of American exceptionalism which yeah. uh, I could talk perhaps a little bit about, but alludes to these comments I made before about what, what really makes America unique. So I spend a lot of time saying America actually is unique. It is exceptional, but most of the things that make it exceptional, at least in the positive sense, uh, actually uh, are not the things that most people assume that it is, which is to say that Americans themselves have this view, oh, we're exceptional because we have uh, we have an exceptionally uh, uh, positive view of freedom, or we're exceptional because we uh, are an exceptional democracy and our country was founded on democratic principles, or we are exceptional because we have uniquely been able to understand the capitalist world and frame a society that's based upon that in a coherent way. Um, and I take some pains throughout the book to say, well, actually, you're wrong on all of those accounts. <laughs> Everything that you think makes you exceptional really doesn't. And in fact, many of the things that you are doing are exceptionally bad and they are not very impressive. And there are other things, of course, we could talk about. But at the same time, it's not just, it's not an anti-American screed. At the same time, it points to a couple of things that really do make the country exceptional, that really, that really are uh, remarkable and that very few people seem to be cognizant of. And then, and then just to pick up on the point that you were uh, making before that I was responding to about this information not making it through. Yeah. Um, there, there are, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist or a wacko or what have you, but there are structural reasons yeah. why America is as divided as it is. And this notion of opinion, this notion of everybody being forced by the media, by their clan, by their tribe, to take information personally as a reflection of themselves, to not be able to live in a world where things are looked at from a dispassionate, curiosity-driven or objective perspective. But every time you hear a piece of information, a piece of news, it's what they are doing to you, what those guys on the other side are doing to you. They are infringing on your freedoms. They are trying to manipulate your children. They are trying to take your job away. And this constant bombardment of divisiveness, which is saying, 
you and your tribe, you're the good guys, but those guys on the other side, they're terrible, they're evil, they're hurting America, they're doing whatever it is. That is a result, in my view, of structural forces. There's a whole industry which is geared to that. And there is an industry which is profiting by that. The, the political classes and the, the standard media is actually doing very well by this divisiveness. So it's not something which has arisen randomly or, or, or just uh, you know, by, by some bizarre uh, stochastic method. It's, it's actually been the result of, um, of forces that are fairly easy to be able to analyze and say, well, there's something in it for those people. And so my sense of, of uh, my, I'm trying to put these two things together and say, okay, you have this expertise over here um, and you can harness that as a way of getting beyond this personal opinion driven affront. And part of that also, just to, just to conclude my latest rant, uh, which I need to do, unfortunately, is, is that Many Americans will say, well, you know, that's not actually a problem because we have experts all the time. Every time I turn on CNN or Fox News or what have you, I have an expert who's coming on and, and saying things to me. And I would argue those people aren't real experts. They're the punditocracy. They're the people who are in the ploy uh, or in the pay rather by and large metaphorically. Again, I don't want to sound like a deep conspiracy theorist. But they are representing interests. Hmm. Um, and 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 they are reinforcing this message uh, mm. that, that, is, uh, that is very much aligned with those particular camps. Meanwhile, and again, this is a lesson that I've, I've certainly learned or at least come to appreciate the seriousness of through Ideas Roadshow, 99.99999% of legitimate experts in any field whatsoever they're not out there to be on TV. They're not desperate to try to stick their face in front of the camera. They're busy working, they're doing their thing. Um, and what you are getting is you are getting self-proclaimed experts whose single greatest character trait is that they are desperately determined to be on television and be experts. Yeah. And that's the wrong thing. Mm. And so you're, you're not, it's not so much that these views are coming and they're being, uh, they're just somehow not making it through. These people aren't being asked. When people ask me, how did you get all these great guys? How did you get these Nobel laureates? How did you get these MacArthur award-winning fellows? How did you get all these, these people in endowed chairs at fancy universities to talk to you? Well, I asked them. Mm. That's it. That's all mm. you need to do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of points I want to pick up on, Howard. Um, funny, it mentions that I'm thinking of the character Howard Bill from the film Network because Obviously, the film network spoke about um, the dangers of what happens when news networks become commercialized and the almighty dollar, uh, to use that to paraphrase, becomes the, becomes the main motivator for, uh, for corporations. And um, essentially, I think, you know, where are we 45 years on from that film being released? The same, we're dealing with we're dealing with the with the same issue. And also something else that springs to my mind is um, the likes of Marshall McLuhan, and he was he was writing about the medium is the message, and I think certainly what you were talking about, Howard, that's that's part of the problem that that, that we're dealing with now. Certainly with things like um, social media uh, and these things like echo chambers that exist, it's it's not so much um, the intellectual veracity of points that people make, and it's 
uh, it's how firm they can make how firmly they can make them make them and you know who who repeats them who shares them and then they get this kind of speed and uh, urgency and currency if you like but if you actually pick them apart a lot of times there's no actual coherency and I think that's that's what we're struggling with with as well really I mean don't get me wrong I'm not someone that wants to go back to a pre-internet era I think I mean you know it's good that people have forums to speak but the trouble is we don't want to end up being in sort of like an anti-intellectualism um do you know what I mean I think there I think what you're talking about is almost coming to a to, to a to a mid to a middle ground and what you're doing by bringing in um academics and scholars such as yourself um into your your um your organization is is it's kind of like a dem democratizing process as well um, because I think in the past there's been this sort of critique hasn't there of the world of academia that it is elitist and it's just you know um, academics in dusty rooms with their tomes you know and just but 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 what the, what you're doing is good because it is is democratizing these ideas but then on the other hand sorry it's a bit of a clumsy point I'm making it but on the other hand we have these echo chambers online and where we do need to kind of unpack the points that, that that people are uh, um, are making. I think the phrase, isn't it, that became known under the Trump era is this idea of popul populism, which um, people use to discredit the whole MAGA movement. Um, this idea, you know, where things become they become popular for want of a better phrase, just because of the force of what is being said, rather than uh, actually analyze what's what's being said, kind of thing. So. Well, there's, there's, you make a lot of good points uh, that we, that we, and I, and I'm, I'm delighted to be with somebody who, uh, who speaks in as, as long and convoluted and many, <laughs> many way. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm being quite serious. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure for me to have the oh, opportunity. You. And I, and I also get a sense of what people who, uh, who are forced to speak to me uh, must have to deal with on a regular basis. Which is <laughs> um, so. With respect to the notion of the media and the structure of the media that you mentioned in network and so forth, yeah, uh, this is also interesting to me uh, because it's an example of of a situation which people have been pointing. You're absolutely right. People have been highlighting and pointing a finger at for well over forty years now, mm. and it's always curious to me that when people are writing papers and talking about something and consistently saying, "You know, if this keeps up, we're going to be in trouble. If this keeps up, we're going to be in trouble. We should really pay attention to this." That somehow everybody is surprised when they are in trouble because it has kept up. Mm. So. At, at some level, you do get a sense of, you know, uh, the feces hitting the, the, the rotating <laughs> propeller um, because, because we all knew this was coming. And so this, we shouldn't really be shocked by the fact that we are in a situation of, of just unspeakable polarity yeah. when, uh, when the concentration of media has been in fewer and fewer hands for a longer and longer period of time that clearly represents political economic interests. So this is really a consequence of something. I mean, in, in physics, you'd say, well, you know, you set the initial conditions, you know what your laws are like, and you know, you're not gonna be surprised all of a sudden when, when your predictions turn out to be, to be correct by and large. And sure. that's, what, that's what we have. So I think that's the first thing. And that, that points to the fact that this shouldn't be shocking. It's not very complicated. Um, many people have been saying 
that we should be concerned about this for a very long time. So maybe rather than saying, oh yes, good book. Oh yes, penetrating article. Hmm, I guess I'll go off to my you know, Starbucks now or whatever it is. <laughs> that, that, that we have to recognize that, that these things have a force to them. And, and if we don't actually do something about it, we're going to wind up in the situation that these, you know, not everybody is a Cassandra, right? If you have 30 million people saying these things over time, you can't use that adjective to describe them anymore, at least that, that word. Anyway, so there's that, there's that structural aspect. So it's not rocket science. It's not tremendously complicated. To a large extent, it was, it, not only was it foreseeable, but it was foreseen. Mm. And, and, and that should give us uh, uh, something to, uh, uh, that, that, should, that should certainly drive the point home and make it also make it clear that if we don't actually think about doing something about it, it's just going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And this brings up the whole Trump issue. Um, and I think a lot of people are of the view that, well, you know, okay, Donald Trump is no longer there and he's no longer pushing his Twitter feed or I, I, anyway, I haven't been paying attention, but anyway, he's clearly not in the same position that he was in six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, uh, you know, adults are in the room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so everything is going to be okay. And my point is everything's not okay. It's not okay, not only because uh, to a large extent, this is a temporary blip, but that wasn't ever the problem. The problem was not Donald Trump per se. Donald yeah. Trump, in my view, was a symptom of what the problem was. He was not actually the problem. And, and I think, you know, you can, Anytime you look at when society kind of goes off the rails, there seems to be a tendency to be able to point your finger and demonize one person. Oh, it was this crazy person who drove us all collectively around the bend, or it was that populist demagogue or, or what have you. Well, that's a sign of something structurally wrong with your society and also an understanding that, well, human beings have a tendency to be driven by these forces. And so we should be aware of them. Mm -hmm. And this brings up a, another point you made with respect to opinion. So um, it's, it's not just, as it's often been said, it's not just that um, we're not getting the right information. Um, or that we should listen to dusty academics more than we should have. Because lots of times, you know, maybe we shouldn't listen to dusty academics, quite frankly. Um, my point is, is more, um, or at least we only should if we're particularly interested in that dusty academic and that dusty academics inclination. And this brings up this idea of, well, what do we mean by the news anyway? And I would argue that our understanding of what the news is has changed tremendously. Not only has it changed into something that we are dealing with 24-7, which it was never, which it really, you know, at least when I was growing up or well before that, the news yeah. was something that, yeah, it came on at a certain time of the day. And you, you knew there were political wonks then, as there are now. Of course, there were people that, that knew exactly what was happening in the finer points of which MP was sitting over here and what some scandal was or what some bill was going through through Parliament or, 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 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or in American terms, who was, uh, you know, which senator was up for re-election or, or whatever. So there were political issues. Um, and there were economic issues, and there was the stock market, which was a thing that some you know, people knew about to some extent, and the, those who knew about it paid attention to it. And these things had a certain place in the overall scheme of life. Mm. Um, they, they no longer do. 
now we're living in a, in a society where uh, the news is coming at us 24-7. Everything is news that we're getting. All the information is news. And worse still, there has been the switch that all the information that is news is personal. So you should have an opinion about it. Mm. It's this idea that if there's, a, there's, a, there's some piece of legislation that's happening, it's relevant to you you should have an opinion about it. You should have some kind of knowledge about what's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen with the latest vaccination uh, policy? What do you think is going to happen with the G8 summit? What do you think is going to happen with this? You should have this guy's an idiot because he's doing this and that. So everything now becomes an opportunity for you to voice your opinion. Hmm. And, and my point with the whole scholarly thing, I try not to use the word scholarly a lot because because when people hear the word scholarly, they think, and I think quite rightly, of some esoteric arcane person sitting in a tower somewhere working on <laughs> how many angels can fit on the head of a pin or, 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 or what have you. Yeah. Um, for me, it's really about curiosity. And that's what's so interesting. So when I talk to people, I, I try to get an understanding of what they're interested in. And the people who are really doing what I think at least is interesting things, they're not doing it because they're out to show that their neighbor's an idiot or that, uh, you know, or that everybody is wrong about X or Y. They're doing it because they're fascinated by the ideas. They're doing it because they're fascinated by the concepts they want to learn, they want to explore. This goes 180 degrees against the zeitgeist right now because it involves dispassionate, curiosity-driven interest so that may be about all sorts of things i mean one of the things that i've always loved about uh, about the united kingdom uh, as it happens uh, is that there is this remarkable tradition of eccentricity there is this remarkable tradition and understanding that there are people who might just be interested in you know trains and in, in, in in India under the British Raj, and they, they have a whole collection of them in their basement about those things and how they work. They might be interested in the fine details of, you know, grasshopper movements. They might be interested. These are not things that they're doing because uh, they're trying to convince themselves that their neighbor's an idiot or anything like that. They're doing them because they're excited, because they're interested, because they're stimulated. And so in, in, in the book, one of the things that I say towards the end when I try to diagnose, okay, well, how did we get here and what is really going on is I actually cite Bertrand Russell quite a bit mm -hmm. because uh, Bertrand Russell wrote, uh, I mean, of course he wrote many things, but he wrote a really interesting book called The Conquest of Happiness. And it was all about how we willfully make ourselves or, or, or at least don't allow ourselves to be as happy as we could be because we distract ourselves by all sorts of ego-driven orientation. And what I'm saying is, okay, Americans, take a look at yourself. Even the ones, maybe you've won a political battle, maybe your guy's gotten in and the other guy's been turfed out or vice versa or whatever. Are you actually happy? Are you happy sitting there constantly on social media, constantly being angry all the time, talking about how the other people are so stupid, whether they're coastal elites or whether they're, you know, they're, they're ignorant Philistines or, or what, what have you. You're, you're not engaging, you're not flourishing, you're not enabling yourself to actually live a, a life, quite frankly, that's without sounding heavy handed, and perhaps it's too late for that, that, that that's actually befitting a human being. You're not living a life mm. of curiosity, of interest, of dignity, you're not flourishing. Mm. And the reason you're not is because you've been constantly forced, 
constantly forced day in, day out to have an opinion, to be angry, to, to, to have a belief about something of which you know nothing. And mm -hmm. part of the joy of living is actually discovering that you know nothing. And it's a great world out there and you can partake in it and, and, and learn about it and find out who thinks X and who thinks Y. And, and that's been gone. Mm. I, yeah, great points you make there, Howard. I think in terms, um, you're talking about Trump. I mean, I, I've for many years, not so much recently, politics was my thing. And then I kind of saw the light and think, well, um, it's not actually the way politics like you're talking about is currently constructed, where essentially, um, you know, in the UK, you have three main parties and it's three different opinions battling one another. Um, it, it almost just becomes like a, a situation of um, each one's just protecting their ego. And there's there's never there's never any point that there's never any point at which, well, what what can we collaborate on? What do we what points do we agree on? And I hate to sound dramatic, but I do think that kind of, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but Western liberal democracies, I think literally are at the point now where we're going, we're almost beyond crisis now. I think in the UK, we're going to see a situation where the Labour and the Conservative Party, I think will fracture and split. And what you'll have is different factions. I can't speak for Canada and America because they're obviously different systems, but um, there's no recognition on the part of the political establishment that this system simply doesn't work. And that's why, you know, people aren't voting. They won't. There's too much vested in keeping the system the way it is. And I feel a lot of the popularity with Trump was he represented, he embodied this ideal. He, you know, he spoke um, the truth of that. And I, and I feel um, I'm neither a supporter or a critic of Trump. I never understood why he... Um, animates people so much I always thought he was an in, he's an interesting character but I, I think that the reason why the political establishment hated him so much is because he came along and spoke in a way whereby he ripped up the normal protocols so he'd go to like the G7 meeting or you know speak at NATO and just speak in a way that wasn't um, kind of ambassador type speak and I think that's that's that that's what's fueled a lot a, a kind of a lot of his popularity so in some sort of uh crass way i think trump the trump phenomena is a is an uh, alluding us perhaps to the fact yes we do need to change politics that our political systems in the west are completely moribund and and broken that's why i won't engage in politics because i just think well uh, some people might say it's a copper but as it's currently constructed there is no point for the reasons partly what you were saying, Howard, it's it's just opinions battling opinion like we see on Twitter and Facebook and other social media. Well, isn't that just the, the political realm? And that's some, um, and you, you you know, in your book, you eloquently speak about the basis of uh, American democracy going right back hundreds of years. And, and, that, and I feel that's an issue that's going to have to be broached um, very soon, because otherwise we could just descend into anarchy if if uh, I'll end on this point, so a very long point I'm making, but if the population at large feel that the political system no longer serves them and people don't involve themselves and don't, don't vote, vote, then the system has no legitimacy. And then you're into the bounds of anarchy and anarchism. I mean, the, sorry, Karen. Well, I, um, th there are lots of things to respond to. Uh, I, I mean, one is a point, uh, 
when when you mention the system works or whether it, it's not working to that, for that matter. And, and this of course uh, raises the question, well, what do you mean by working and working in whose interest? Absolutely. So to some extent uh, it does work. It, mm. I mean, it did work for Donald Trump. It didn't work perhaps the second time around but it worked the first time around for Donald Trump and quite possibly perhaps even likely it would have worked had all sorts of other uh, rather exceptional circumstances not been in play last November, I think it's uh, not at all beyond the, the realm of possibility that he would have been elected. And had he been elected, I think there would have been a very ironclad argument to say that from his perspective, it worked. So this brings up the whole idea of who benefits and what do we mean by uh, a political system or a society that's actually functioning. Um, and you might say, well, as I quite frankly said, perhaps a few decades ago, uh, well, you know, I mean, everybody clearly has their own interest and everybody, the only reason why people go into politics, this idea of the dedicated public servant who's putting his interests uh, uh, below that of his call to duty is, is just nonsense, of course. We all recognize that people become political figures because they're interested in power, because they're interested in furthering their own image. They're not doing it out of some idealistic selfless motivation to save society or any of that nonsense. That's, that's of course complete rubbish. And that's one of the reasons why, again, if you go back, not, not to sound like uh, arcane myself, but you go back to someone like Aristotle and they were saying, well, look, the only way to try to avoid this sort of thing is to have some element of randomness involved, have people being drawn uh, uh, by lots into public service at some level, because otherwise, if you just leave it up to the people who want to be politicians, if that's what your system is predicated upon, you're in trouble because you're self-selecting the people who are vainglorious, you're self-selecting the people who are power hungry, and you're gonna get a system run by those people and everybody who's reasonable and decent and has anything else to do with their lives is going to do it and you're gonna have a big, big hole. So, and, and I think that applies whether or not you have a strictly democratic system or whether you have an oligarchic system or whether you have a mixture or representative this or that, or, you know, I mean, they're all, I think that's a, that's a big problem is who's benefiting and whose interests are at stake and does it matter? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was saying a while ago, a few decades ago, I might've said, well, you know, in fact, I did say, uh, yeah, that's the way it is, but I don't really care. And somehow the system muddles through and it's just, I'm just not gonna let it bother me too much because life's too short and you only have one life to live and you know, mm -hmm. focus on more interesting things. Um, but I would argue that we're now living at a time when it becomes harder and harder to justify that. And some of the problems that we have necessitate some real solutions. I mean, climate change is one of them. Uh, and it's, it's not the only one, but it's a big one and it's a symbolic one that you can't just stick your head in the ground and say, fine, we're going to leave it up to these, you know, petty narcissistic people to throw their hat in the ring and become uh, uh, heads of state or heads of whatever, because the problem simply will not get addressed that way. Mm -hmm. So somehow the problems now are of a scale that we, we can't morally just step back and say, yeah. well, forget about all of that. We have to recognize that something has to be done, um, which is the bad news. The good news, I think, at some level is that things can be done. 
Um, I think it, it's not as if it's hopeless or there's nothing that we can possibly do, but muddling through or putting your head in the sand, I don't think is an appropriate response. So, and, and we are all interconnected uh, as, you know, as never before. It's a cliche, but that doesn't make it any less true for that. I mean, take, take the pandemic, right? As, as an obvious example, as we're sitting here, uh, isolated in our own little, uh, little booths uh, all, all around the world. Well, there are a couple of things that you can point to about what's happened uh, in the past year or so. Um, so one thing, which I think is not recognized by very many people, is what a remarkable thing has actually happened. So a little over a year ago, or maybe let's say a year and a half now uh, ago, we were faced with uh, a completely unknown novel virus, something which had never been seen before, right? And in, and in the better part of less than a year, I think maybe nine months or 10 months, I don't know exactly what the numbers are. The scientific community was able to develop a spate of vaccines against that virus in about nine months. I mean, it's just stupefying what they were able to do. And, you know, everybody's, you know, bitching about this and that and, oh, you know, these people are destroying things because they didn't get their second shot. And, you know, oh, the, the anti-vaxxers are terrible people. They're all wasting their time with all this nonsense. In the meantime, if you just look at it as a scientific problem, I mean, this is unprecedented. It's a remarkable medical, biomedical accomplishment, which was done on a just unbelievably short time period. And that should be something which gives people hope and recognizes, you know, for all of our foibles and for all of our flaws, we humans, we're not completely terrible. I mean, we have some pretty positive aspects to us. That's a remarkable accomplishment. Now, I'm not, I'm not a whatever, a biotechnologist, I'm not a molecular biologist. And I'm also, I strongly suspect that these people didn't start from zero because people have been studying coronaviruses for a while. And of course they got the DNA from China relatively early and they were able to model it and they had systems in which to model it, fine. But that's all to the point that it's remarkable what can be done and it's remarkable what is being done. And that too is something that I think people do not appreciate and, and haven't gone to any trouble to appreciate. Yeah. Now that's on the positive side. On the negative side, what, what has happened in terms of the development of these vaccines? Well, there's a Russian vaccine. There's a Chinese vaccine. There's a, you know, they're, they're, everybody's got the, do I know how well the Russian vaccine works today? Um, whatever the day is, May, what is the day? May 3rd, May 4th, May 5th, May, in early May, 2021? I have no idea. I, I'm not sure anybody has any idea exactly what's going on. Why don't I know? Why is it that when I'm living in the European Union, everything is predicated upon some political deal and some nationalistic aspect? Why are the vast majority of people in the United Kingdom getting inoculated with, or at least a significant more than in other places with AstraZeneca? Well, because there's a, there's a nationalistic component to it. Why, why does this work? This, we're all humans on planet Earth. Why haven't we figured out a way to share information, to develop our research on a truly uh, international level to be able to help all of us? Because mm -hmm. we're all, you know, we're all susceptible to this. We can all die from this, sure. this, this business. Why, why are so many decisions being made on nationalistic grounds, on regional grounds, on obviously financial grounds that are being ceded to it. 
Um, I don't live in Canada. I'm of Canadian descent. The Canadian government decided my father, who's an elderly man, mm -hmm. uh, he had his first uh, vaccine. He had the Pfizer, uh, Pfizer shot uh, and he has to wait four months for a second one. Right. So he has to wait four months. Why? Because they're because that's what the government of Canada decided because they didn't have enough supplies, even though the scientists who are in charge recommend three to four weeks. And in France, where I live, we get our second shot in four weeks. Mm. So why is this happening? And, and it's a massive failure in coordination. It's a massive triumph, to use the word extremely ironically and sarcastically, of politics over scientific integration, over reasonable public policy. Mm. Um, and so on the one hand, we have, we have uh, evidence of just some phenomenal human abilities in being able to problem solve and combat an issue. And on the other hand, we have massive dysfunctionalities. And I'm 100% certain that if I'm going to look for massive dysfunctionalities, France or Canada or the UK, they're not going to be the worst case scenarios by no. any stretch of the imagination. No. No. So if it's, if it's dysfunctional here, just imagine where it is in other places. And why is that? Why can't no. we get our acts together? Why can't the bloody European Union? I know you guys, that's a whole other story. But anyway. <laughs> I mean, even within the European Union, which you would think would be a body that could mount a coherent, unified response to this. I mean, what the hell is the point of the European Union if they can't mount an emergency response in a coordinated way? It's a disaster. Every country is just doing their own thing and there's no integration at all. And it's, it's a joke. Yeah. Um, Howard, I was just wondering, as we come up towards the last uh, section of our allotted time, um, just look into the future, because um, it's always good to try and um, leave the audience on a more positive note, shall we say. Um, how do you see, um, we've been talking a little bit about division within US society, this idea of cultural, a cultural war. Do you, do you think that's going to become more intense with issues around race and BLM? And we've, we've always had the ongoing issues around, obviously, um, gun control uh, and and um, other issues. How do you see, do you see that there, there's going to become more and more division, more tribalism around these types of issues on race, ethnicity, gender, um, abortion, things like that? How do you see the future in the United States under a Biden administration? Well, I don't think it's, I don't think it has anything to do with the Biden administration. No. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, I, I guess it's logically possible if he turns completely despotic or something, which I'm certainly <laughs> not expecting. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with the Biden administration. And, and I'm not sure it has to do with any administration. Uh, mm. So I think if, if people accept the status quo, I mean, you don't live in America, uh, even though I sound like an American, I don't live in America either. Um, but I think it's, I've spent a fair amount of time in the United States. And when you're there, uh, it's difficult to describe the extent of the unrelenting bombardment of division, which you are constantly being fed. It's hard to imagine if you're not actually there. Mm. And that's what needs to change. So I don't think it needs, to, I don't think it's going to happen from the top down for sure. all sorts of reasons. Uh, yeah. uh, not least of which, because in many ways, the political parties, both of them benefit from it. Sure. So you can't expect that that's actually going to happen. 
Yeah. I think what has to happen is people have to somehow turn off their television sets. They have yeah. to somehow put their, uh, you know, their, their, their Twitter accounts away and they have to find a way to move on and stimulate themselves and enlighten themselves in such a way that they're not taking everything personally. So I suggest specifically that there are things that other institutions can play, uh, roles rather that other institutions can play. I think that the, you know, I highlight the universities and I talk about how the, one of the things that makes America so positively exceptional is the fact that it has the dominant share of research and scholarship and knowledge uh, and, and expertise on planet Earth. It's remarkable what it, it's a remarkable, stupefying accomplishment that very few people appreciate. Many of the people who are at American universities are not American, which is all to the good. That's fine. There's no problem with that whatsoever. Those people need to be harnessed. I think the universities themselves can do a lot to harness them. We are living in an age of affordable, professional quality digital media and communications technology that can be used to actually get those voices out there and produce high quality programs. And the hope is that when a lot of high quality programs will be out there on some coherent platform or way, then people will start to engage with other activities, not because they're constantly being fed by their clan or their tribe, mm. uh, but because they are just being stimulated with their curiosity. Now, mm. I suspect that that's not going to happen at a grassroots level because people can say, well, you know, we have the internet. You had mentioned technology before. We never had a chance to really look at that. I don't look at technology as a... Uh, as a, as a force for bad, I'm not even sure it's a force for good. It's a potential force for good and force for bad like anything else. Mm. But it does give you the opportunity, it does give you the chance to be able to actually have these ideas and stimulating programs out there. But I don't think they're gonna happen by themselves because that's the situation we're in now, right? Mm. I mean, there's Absolutely. most of the stuff's out there. People can go, there's all these crazy people out there who are screaming uh, as loudly as they can. It's certainly not going to happen from Fox News and CNN no. and the like. They're not going to be doing it because, again, they benefit from the situation. Mm. So you're going to need some somebody with some heft and some force to some extent to be able to step in. And so what I specifically recommend, uh, and you know, maybe this is utopian, but I don't think it is, I, I recommend that those universities that represent excellence mm. work together in some way to be able to produce nonpartisan, stimulating, interesting content so that the person who finally has the temerity or, or just basically fed up, so they shut off their mindless opinion-driven television, they have somewhere to go. Because, mm. because the sad truth is, if they were to turn that off or put their phone down for a second, or maybe they could use it on their phone, they don't have to put their phone down. But if they were to, if they were to move away from their, you know, what, whatever Facebook, group they're a member of or what have you and they're saying okay fine now I'm interested in actually being stimulated now I'm interested in finding out something and it does it's not a political thing right it could be mm. could be about anything it could be about you know hat sizes or the evolution of uh you know uh, I don't know bell bottoms or it could be it could be anything that you particularly are mm. interested in it's up to you to be interested in the thing mm. but there are so many people that can add interesting stimulating ideas and this can be put together using this digital media technology so what i'm calling for when i'm mentioning that the universities should be engaged and try to do something is what i'm basically saying is look 
don't get you the faculty and the knowledgeable professors to be driving this because they can't. Mm -hmm. They can't because first of all, they're dusty academics and they don't know what they're doing in, in, in these other areas. They can't because maybe they'll be tempted to stick their face in the camera too much. They can't because the truth of the matter is they're busy doing work. They're busy doing their Absolutely. research. Exactly what they should be doing. What you can do though is get the students involved, get the young people involved, get them to work with the latest tools of digital media, which are fantastic. You're able to use, um, you know, if you look at the Adobe Creative Cloud and you look at all the things that are possible in terms of producing audio, video, if you look at you know, books, you can do all sorts of things at a very high professional standard. You can come up with a, a wondrous amount of engaging programs that will help them on their educational level. It won't be expensive. They can leverage the expertise of the, of the faculty and of those research staff and be able to produce content that your average person can engage with in such a way that when they finally turn off all this nonsense, they have somewhere to go because you can't convince people, you know, turn off your whatever, turn off whatever it is that you're listening to, unless there's something better and more engaging and more interesting for them to watch. And right now there isn't. Mm. Yeah. And just doing some research for um, this particular video, a couple of your contemporaries have shared very similar um, ideas to you. Um, Professor Alan Wolf. Uh, in his book One Nation After All, he 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 spoke about the 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 kind of the failure of political leadership, if you like, and the and 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 echoes your point that really it's it's about it's going to come from the cultural ground, sort of uh, grassroots, if you like, rather than you know some sort of pyramid top-down political system that's gonna that's gonna um, it's gonna that's gonna bring it bring about change really i mean and, and and that that's the problem isn't it we're all you know i'm sat here saying well the political system doesn't uh, appear to work for the mass of the british population because it doesn't represent our interests but how do we as citizens go about changing that how do we there's this impasse almost you know what i mean this we don't and it's such a critical um it's such a critical issue isn't it um we just there's like this standoff, if you like. It's how, how do we how do we how do we proceed from from this point? Really, you know, it's well, difficult. I, it is very difficult. But my sense is the way to do it is by stimulating people with the ideas. So rather yes. than even talking about politics or left right, I mean, I can't. Frankly, uh, I am just as they would say in your country, I am gobsmacked uh, <laughs> by by. The fact that we still use uh, a divide that was potentially appropriate during the French Revolution, but, uh, <laughs> but certainly no longer appropriate to categorize uh, political interests and, and even you know, human beings in a society. Are you on the left or are you on the right? It's completely yeah. total nonsense. Mm. So the way we get beyond nonsense, which is being fed to us, is actually not only educating ourselves, because mm. when you say educating yourself, it sounds like it's work. It sounds like it's eating, you know, taking your medicine. It sounds like <laughs> it's something deeply unpleasant that nobody actually wants to do. That's mm. not what I'm recommending. And that will, of course, never work. What I'm talking about is engaging and stimulating yourself. Because mm. actually, 
the world, and this is what I meant before with when I referenced the vaccines and so forth, the world is a fascinating place and we're, we know a lot about it and we're learning a lot and it's not, I mean, it includes science, but it's by no means all about science. It's by no means, all, there's no fault line between the you know, sciences and the humanities. There are so many remarkably interesting, wonderful things that we are learning. And to your point about technology earlier, technology can enable us to actually learn about that. Technology can enable us to get a much better sense of what's happening in all sorts of fascinating areas of human inquiry. And it's once we start learning about that, and once we start partaking of programs that are stimulating us in that way, we do a couple things. First of all, we are broadening our minds. We are becoming more understanding. We are becoming more aware. Um, and we are also getting out of this tribal ghetto. So rather than saying with respect to something like climate change and assuming that everybody who, who first of all, assuming that it's a yes, no issue, assuming that everybody who's on one divide is doing it for one sort of political reason as another sort of political reason, yeah. you, you move into this understanding of, well, what is, what is the evidence? What are the arguments? What are the problems? How can we solve them? How can we move forwards? How can we address them? And rather than say, well, this person says that, and they clearly say that because they're in the pay of these people, or they're moving in that particular direction, or they hate people from my neck of the woods, or, or this kind of nonsense, but you're actually taking the issues on their own terms. Sure. And once people start doing that, then at least we have the conditions that are established in order for us to solve them. We still may not solve them. Some of these problems are really hard or we may not solve them in the right way. And there may be a question of leadership or there may be, you know, even the best possible governments that are as, as well motivated as possible make mistakes. So it's no guarantee against uh, it's making errors. But if you're at least addressing the question on its own terms and you're also engaging yourself with trying to understand what those problems are, not only will it mean that we have a much greater likelihood of success, but it's just a hell of a lot better way to live your life yeah, because you're actually engaging with those ideas. Yeah. So I think that's the way we have to somehow move the ball forwards. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the left, so I guess, you know, in many ways politically, if I had to vote and so forth and so on, I would I'd probably be on the left. But the left, the, 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 the screaming left, quite frankly, bothers me just as much as the screaming right does. And they scream just as hard and just as loudly. And they tell people they're uneducated or I come from a science background and the number of people who are constantly going to, you know, science conferences and telling everyone who doesn't that they're an idiot because they don't understand evidence-based, blah, 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 blah. They're just as preachy. They're annoying as hell. And, and it's very hard not to believe that they're just swapping one dogmatism for another. And so I'm not interested in being faith-based because of, uh, you know, Donald Trump. And I'm not interested in being faith-based because of what some science guru tells me at the, you know, the New York Times or whatever it is. I'm not interested in being faith-based at all in that respect. I'm interested in engaging and stimulating myself to try to find out what the interesting things are. And often interesting things mean that you're wrong. And that's cool to find out, hey, I, mm -hmm. gosh, I used to think this. Now I think that. So this has nothing to do, when I say faith, of course, it has nothing to do with personal faith and religion or any of that. It's a whole separate ball of wax, which is you know, completely removed in people's personal choice. I'm talking about the willingness, in fact, the desire to be engaged with ideas for their own sake, which I believe fervently 
is the right way to live. And I believe it's the only way we are going to collectively as a society be able to face some of the deep and serious problems that we're, we're grappling with. Thank you so much, Howard. It's some inspirational closing words there. So um, as we're coming towards the end of our uh, allocated time, um, can you just share with the audience how they can connect with your work and purchase your new book, of course? The pump, the, the, the right. This, this, I'm terrible at this point, so I'm really <laughs> glad you did this. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hold up the book because it's yeah. a beautiful photo. Can I do that? Yeah. There it is. So this is the book. It's called Exceptionally Upsetting. Um, and it's available, uh, you know, everywhere, Amazon, blah, 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 all your various sellers. You can order it through your bookshop. You can order it on bookshop.org. Uh, you can get it uh, anywhere you, uh, everywhere fine books are sold. Uh, it has several conspicuous advantages to it, uh, but the, the, the most overwhelming is that it's quite short. So, uh, so it, it will take a very long time to read. It's wonderfully affordable. And the other thing I would recommend uh, is that we have, as I mentioned before, all of these uh, books and eBooks that we have made through Ideas Roadshow. So we have 100 separate conversations. All of them are available as eBooks. They're all very, very cheap. They're, I think they're $3 or something like that. So that's even less. I don't know what the pound is to the dollar now, 250 or something like that. Think about that, yeah. So uh, we also have collections of uh, five conversations each available as eBooks and as paperbacks. So you can order those through, this, through the usual channels. Uh, they're obviously a little bit more expensive, but they're less than five times the price of one. So I think they're at least the electronic version is. So they're all very affordable, um, but um, I, I would, I'm obviously not objective, but I do think we're doing something really different and important by being able to uh, highlight the ideas in a, in a, a respectful but a, but a non-propaganda way uh, of these researchers in a wide variety of fields. And it's really, personally, it's been really very fascinating for me to be able to engage with them and see where they're coming from because you get things that come out as you would know i certainly don't have to tell you when you have a long conversation with somebody mm. things happen uh and and really really interesting information comes to light that might not come to light in the normal course and that's what i try to capture uh in in those in those works and uh, we're very pleased by what we've done so far excellent thank you so much so thank you for joining us here at discerning consciousness uh howard it's been a very uh, interesting uh, discussion. Uh, we've covered uh, many uh, interesting issues. So thank you so much uh, for joining thank us you. today.